0: Okay, good to see you guys tonight, first Wednesday of the new year. You would turn with me in your Bibles to the, the epistle of James, chapter 3. It seems like we do a study and then we have to break for a few weeks. I know it's been kind of a crazy thing. Our last study in the book of James was about three weeks ago. So every time we meet, I feel the need to kind of uh, refresh your memory as to what's going on. So bear with me as I do that one more time and kind of get a little, uh, do a little review from last study as we kind of get going here tonight. But uh, as we said when we first started the study in James, that uh, he is calling his readers, primarily Jewish Christians, that's true, but all Christians really, to a life of deeper maturity and commitment. Now in the first two chapters, he has presented us with some of the characteristics of a mature Christian. That's his goal. He wants us all to grow and to be mature. And uh, in chapter 1, he emphasizes that mature Christians embrace Trials, because we know it helps. We don't, <laughs> we don't necessarily enjoy trials, but we do embrace them because we know they help us to grow and be more like Jesus. But on the other hand, though, we also are very much aware that the devil uses temptations to bring us down. So we embrace. James says the mature Christian embraces trials, uh, counts it joy to suffer for Christ because we grow, but also is always on the lookout. Uh, for the enemy's temptations because I don't have to tell you guys uh, there are many men that I have seen in ministry who were in ministry 30 years plus in a moment of carelessness fell and uh, brought reproach on the name of the Lord and uh, a black mark on their whole ministry somebody once said I heard a, a pastor say one time that um, it takes 30 years to build a ministry and about three minutes to bring it down so we have to be careful and the moment you think you got something beat you've arrived oh I got this sin whipped be careful pride goes before what a fall then in chapter two he uh, basically says look you know Christian maturity is not only what you know and what you say that's important but how you live and one of the characteristics of somebody who is really spirit-filled well they have God's heart in them And as such, they have a heart for the the disadvantaged, the poor, Uh, those who are the weakest of society. He talks about widows and orphans. And uh, these are the people that God wants us to reach out to. Mature Christians have a heart for these kind of folks. Uh, Immature Christians tend to focus on themselves, carnality. But uh, spirit-filled Christians are always looking to see who they might uh, help, bless, and so on. In the Old Testament we see all over the place how God had a heart and still has a heart of course for you know the orphan the widow the stranger. All throughout the Bible God says things like if you lend to the if you give to the poor you lend to the Lord I'll repay you and so on. Now in chapter 3 he shares another important characteristic of a mature Christian. Listen, a mature spirit-filled Christian has power over their tongue. Has power over their tongue. Verse 1 And we're reviewing from last time still. But he said, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Of course, a teacher of God's word is really representing God. And as much as we try to tell people, don't put me on a pedestal, people are going to do some of that. Uh, It's a heavy responsibility to speak for God. Uh, As a teacher, a pastor, or Sunday school teacher, small group leader, whatever it might be, it's a very important thing that, and we should take it very seriously when uh, we feel God is calling us into the teaching ministry, Uh, that we do our due diligence, that we study uh, diligently and um, uh, and all that, we make sure that we draw out from the passage what God has said we want to exegete the passage, draw out from it what God has put there, not eisegete the passage. Read into what what we want it to say. A lot of that going on today, all right? He talks about teachers will receive the more strict judgment. The judgment he's talking about is twofold depending on what group you're talking about. We talked about this last time. There's always going to be and always has been false teachers in the church, even as there was in Israel in the Old Testament. False prophets, false teachers, Uh, In the New Testament times, you had the scribes and the Pharisees and so on. Today we have these false teachers and those claiming to be prophets and apostles and pastors who are not teaching God's word in truth. Uh, They're false teachers. They're not saved. They're wolves among the sheep. They are using God's people to line their pockets. Peter said, look, they were in the Old Testament. They're in the New Testament period, and they will make merchandise out of you. That's their whole thing for the most part false teachers and so on, their whole thing is to make money off of the people of God. And that's one of the main characteristics. Um, And Peter says, look, they're teaching damning heresy. It's one thing to be a little wrong on some side issue. It's another thing to get the gospel wrong and teach damning heresy, heresy that will damn a person to hell forever if embraced. And there's a lot of that going around, the JWs, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, a lot of Christian cults, uh, Christian scientists, a lot of Christian cults, uh, you know, people calling themselves Christians, but are teaching a wrong gospel. And uh, Paul talked about that in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. He says, you know, uh, there are people who come and, uh, you know, they claim to be, there there are many people who come with a false gospel. And... uh, We have to beware. So they will have the judgment that the Bible talks about in Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15, the great white throne judgment, which will lead to them being cast into hell, the lake of fire, forever. But there's another judgment, obviously much less severe, uh, that is directed at those people who are Christians, but are not teaching the truth. Now, please, as we said last time, God is not going to hold people accountable for teaching something that they believe is what the Bible is saying, but maybe they haven't, they misinterpreted it. God is not going to hold Christians accountable or or judge them in any way, discipline them, uh, because they differ on the timing of the rapture. There are good, solid Christians that differ on the timing of the rapture, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, pre-wrath. These folks love the Lord they're genuine believers in Christ, and they're teaching what they believe the Bible is truly saying. That's not a problem. You know, even things like, are the gifts of the Holy Spirit still around today? Tongues, miracles, and so on. That's a debate in the church, and I've I've seen wonderful, godly Christians on both sides of the argument. I don't get caught up with that stuff. When I was a young guy, you know, I had to prove to everybody how smart I was, the older I get, the less I know. Kind of a thing. You don't realize how dumb you are until you get a little older and learn a little, little bit more. Okay, and it was amazing when I was a teenager how dumb my father was. When I hit about twenty twenty one, he was a genius. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's amazing. But that's the idea. People though that, again, are, are differ on minor, non essential doctrine. That's not the issue. We're talking about people who take what God has clearly said and twist it uh, to appease the culture. We'll say. There are Christians who teach that homosexuality is not a sin. Gay marriage is fine. Uh, Even things like abortion are okay if you feel like, you know, this is what you need to do to maintain your own personal uh, well-being or whatever it might be. The Bible is clear about these issues. And so I believe those men, those women who are teaching contrary to what God has said, he will judge them, but not... In hell, of course, because we're saved by grace. Uh, he will discipline them, disciplining them right here in the earth in ways, all right? But it will also uh, lead to a loss of rewards in heaven when they stand before him at the Bema Seat to receive their rewards. And, uh, you know, Paul says, look, if I seek to be a man pleaser, I'm no longer a servant of Christ. And there's a lot of man pleasers in the body. Why? Because, you know, they want to make people happy so that they come to their churches, They water down the gospel. They, you know, don't deal with the tough issues. Or they just basically tell people it's okay to be gay or whatever. That is not helping anybody who's gay. It's not loving those who are homosexuals to to lie to them and so on. So they will be judged in the sense of disciplined severely for, you know, purposely twisting what the Bible clearly says. Verse 2, For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Now, chapter 3 deals with the tongue, primarily, and uh, we all know the tongue can and has done a lot of damage in people's lives, and, uh, but as Jesus told us uh, in Matthew 12, the real problem isn't the tongue, it's the heart, for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. We'll talk about that more at the end of the study. But when James says that a mature Christian has learned to control their tongue, and that's what he means when he says not stumble in word, that's the implication that he's talking about. Uh, A mature Christian who has learned to control his tongue, the implication is that, look, when you're mature, yeah, you're, you're strong. But why are you strong? Because you're walking in the Spirit and you're filling your mind with the Word of God. This is why a person is mature and they're strong. It's not because of any inherent strength on their part. It's because they're doing what, they, what all of us should be doing. But those who are mature have learned that, look, we have to be disciplined. And I say we, uh, I'm, I'm not very disciplined in a lot of areas. But this is the, this is the goal. And, and whatever discipline we can achieve as Christians, it all, it's all the power of the Holy Spirit. All right? We have to learn to turn over. We try so hard to to help God, okay? And, 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 you know, the new year is a great time for people to make these new year's resolutions, which are really promises to God if you're a Christian. Christians making promises to God that this year is going to be different. Lord, I'm going to start getting up earlier and spend time in the Word before work or prayer. I'm going to go to Bible study. I'm going to do this. I'm going to stop, you know eating the wrong stuff, and, and maybe looking at the wrong stuff, and so on. Lord, I promise you this is going to be a, a good year in our, in, in our relationship. What are you doing? You're making God a promise based on your own strength. As we have said many times, you cannot use the flesh to conquer the flesh. And that's what a a, a promise is. What I need to do is say, Lord, I can't do it. There's no way I can do it. If anything that's going to happen this year that's going to be good, if I'm going to be uh, transformed more and more into the image of Christ and walk in the Spirit, you've got to do that. Now, here's my responsibility to offer myself to use a living sacrifice every day, to keep bringing myself before you and saying, Lord, here am I, fill me, use me, but I can't do it. The Spirit of God has to flow through me to produce the fruit of the Spirit. And so James is saying, look, yes, a mature Christian is one who has learned to control their tongue, but they've learned to control their tongue because they keep their heart pure by walking in the spirit and filling their minds with the word of God continually. He goes on, he said, we all stumble in many things. Well, as we said last time, what that simply means is that we've all blown, it. none of us are perfect. We all stumble, okay? Even mature Christians are not perfect. That's not what he's, uh, he's saying. He's just saying, though, that if anyone does not stumble in a word, he is a perfect man. The word perfect means mature. Look, none of us are perfect. Even the most mature Christian still sins. In fact, John said if we say we have no sin, we've deceived ourselves. The truth isn't in us, right? If we confess our sins, he is just in, the, in all to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But the idea is, though, that when you walk in the Spirit, more and more you're going to sin less and less that's just the way it is and so he's saying look if anyone is mature all right uh, and again the greek word for perfect is uh, telios, and it can either mean absolutely perfect in the sense of sinless or complete mature uh, depending on the context and i think it's pretty clear that james is saying uh, that he has christian maturity in mind, not sinless perfection that's only jesus territory right? But he's basically saying, look, even though none of us is perfect, sinless, anyone who has learned to control their tongue is definitely a mature Christian. Why is that? Well, because a person who has learned to control their tongue is a person who has also learned to control pretty much every other area of their life, their body. Why? Because the tongue is the last, is the strongest enemy we face in the flesh. It's the one that is going to require the most. Uh, power of the spirit to overcome and control. Um, we think other areas, alcohol or drugs or this, those are powerful areas of bondage, I agree with you. But the one that flies under the radar is what comes out of our mouth. We tend not to think about that too much because it's just so common to talk and to shoot our mouths off and maybe say things that you know we shouldn't say. And so I think what James is saying is, look, anyone who has learned to control their tongue Well, they are a mature Christian in pretty much every other area of their life because the tongue, listen, is the toughest opponent we face in our Christian life. Now, here's where we begin to get into the new study for tonight. The last time we said, in order to impress on us the importance of controlling what comes out of our mouths, James now gives us six illustrations of the tongue. He likens it to a bit, a rudder, fire, a poisonous animal, a fountain, a spring fountain, and a fig tree. Now, all six work together to paint a picture in our minds of the benefits of using our tongue wisely, but also the devastation that results when we use our tongues unwisely, carelessly, haphazardly. Um, you know, life and death are in the power of the tongue. Okay, we can speak words of healing, words of encouragement, words that build up, or we could use our tongues to destroy, and uh, we have to decide uh, what we're going to use our our tongues to accomplish. And of course, you walk in the Spirit, you're going to want to yield yourself totally to the Holy Spirit. So verse 3, indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships, although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds They are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. When James talks about the tongue being like a bit and a rudder, he is speaking of the power of the tongue to listen, to direct, to direct. A bit and rudder are relatively small in comparison to the things that they are able to direct. A small bit in the mouth of a horse, a horse is a pretty powerful, pretty large animal, But that little bit, the rider can cause the the horse to go in one direction or the other by simply pulling on the reins, which pull on the bit, and cause the horse then to move in whatever direction the rider wants it to to move it. Uh, Also, by comparison, he says a rudder is relatively small uh, when compared to the size of a ship, we'll say. But it allows the uh, pilot of the ship, by just turning the rudder one way or the other, It allows that entire ship, massive ship, to be turned in a various direction. James's point is that the tongue, although a very small member of our body, has the power to change the course of a life. As we just said, Proverbs 18, verse 21, the tongue is so powerful that the writer says death and life are in the power of the tongue. And that's why the psalmist prayed in Psalm 141, verse 3, take control of my mouth, O Lord, and put a guard over the door of my lips. Another author put it this way. He said, and I quote, This means that both the bit and the rudder must be under the control of a strong hand. The expert horseman keeps the mighty power of his steed under control, and the experienced pilot courageously steers the ship through the storm. When Jesus Christ controls the tongue, then we will not fear saying the wrong things or even saying the right things in the wrong way, quote. Very true. In fact, let me just say this. The only uh, way to control the human tongue is through the power of another tongue. Remember Acts 2? Let me read it to you. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a mighty rushing wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting and there appeared to them divided tongues on each of their heads divided tongues as of fire and one set upon each of them and they were listen all filled with the holy spirit so the only real way to control the tongue in your mouth is through the tongue of the holy spirit the power the filling of the spirit which gives us the grace the strength that we need not only to serve the lord but to live for the Lord, right? But listen, getting back to what James says, the tongue is the power to um, change the direction of a person's life, either for good or for evil. I think of these young Muslim men who are going to these mosques, listening to uh, radical uh, imams, uh, preach hate and violence uh, against non-Muslims, and how those words are impacting them in a very powerful way Because when words can get you to strap on a bomb belt to detonate yourself in a crowded marketplace to kill women, children, and so on, those are powerful words. They're having an impact. It's scary because a lot of our young people are going on the web listening to these radical imams uh, preach their message of hate and violence, and they're becoming radicalized. These are homegrown terrorists from our own country, speaking Words that are leading young people into uh, lives of evil. Uh, Warren Worsby talks about the power of the spoken word to direct a person's life to God and the life of good. He said, and I quote, on April 21st, 1855, Edward Kimball went into a Boston shoe store and led young Dwight L. Moody to Christ. The result? One of history's greatest evangelists, a man whose ministry still continues. Yes, the tongue is like a bit and a rudder. It has power to direct. How important is it that our tongue direct people in the right way? Quote. Very true. But listen, guys, not only does the tongue have the power to direct a life, it also has the power to destroy a life. He said in verse 5, Even so the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is, is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature. And it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, or of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no one can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Of course, in these verses, James goes on to liken the tongue to a fire and a poisonous animal, both of which have the power to destroy. He says it only takes a small fire. We would think of a match today, just a small match, you know, and I can't tell you how many fires out in the West because I have family out there, um, Then they have these brush fires that race through areas and destroy dozens of homes, take lives, often just somebody throws a cigarette out the window of their car, you know, when it's real dry and windy, Uh, But a small match can set an entire forest on fire, is what James is basically saying, and cause great destruction. Even so, the tongue is one of the smallest members of our body. But James says it's hell's match. It's hell's match used effectively to damage and destroy lives. Uh, I remember reading the biography of D.L. Moody uh, some years ago, And how that on the night of uh, October eighth, 1871, he was preaching in Chicago. And uh, he presented the gospel as he always did to his audience and uh, told them to go home, think about it, and come back next week if they wanted to pray to receive Christ as their Savior. As the meeting was beginning to be dismissed at around 8.30 uh, that night, already the bells from fire trucks could be heard because that was the night of the great Chicago fire. The fire was reportedly started uh, in the barn of of Mrs. O'Leary, and uh, her cow apparently kicked over a kerosene lantern and started the whole thing. That little lantern destroyed 17,500 houses, left 125,000 homeless, uh, took the lives of 300 people, and cost the city of Chicago over $400 million. Moody, as he was making his way home, and by the way, because of that, Moody said he never again sent people home without pressing them at that moment to make a decision for Christ. He felt that people that he had preached to that night went on their way home had died in the fire. In fact, as he was trying to get home, he talked about uh, how the fire was everywhere. He heard people screaming, and the fire was just everywhere. He said, it reminded me of the fires of hell. In fact, from that time on, he always used the Chicago Fire to preach the people about about hell because it was so vivid and uh, so like in his mind what hell would be like, the fire and the screaming and so on. Uh, Very powerful uh, message. Again, guys, even though the Chicago Fire was very devastating, listen, that can't even compare. It, It can't even compare to the destruction that has been caused by the human tongue over the centuries. I mean, you're talking about lives damaged, reputations ruined, destroyed, even physical death and suffering, all because of what people have said, spoken. Proverbs 16, 27, an ungodly man digs up evil, and it is on his lips like a burning fire. Proverbs 16:27. As I said last time, for every word in Hitler's book, Mein Kampf, 125 people died In World War II. You know what I just read yesterday? Mein Kampf is once again the bestseller in Germany. After it went um, public domain, uh, a publisher was going to print out 4,000 copies, but he had requests for 85,000. And it's not really the German people primarily. You know who's really buying that book? Progressives and Muslims. In fact, it's one of the biggest sellers throughout the Middle East among Muslims. Why? Well, they hate Jews, okay, uh, and all, as Hitler did. But, um, you know, there's a lot of people that are still looking for this utopia that Hitler promised he was going to bring. The Aryan race and all that. So we're seeing that, but I don't want to get off on that. I'm just saying, though, that, you know, as somebody has once said, those who uh, fail to learn the lessons of history are doomed to repeat them. It's almost like things are coming around and we're going to see this whole thing happening again. We know the Bible says that the Jewish people will be persecuted uh, again under the Antichrist. In fact, uh, six million Jews died in World War II. Uh, many of the Jews after the war put bumper tickets on their bumpers of their cars that said never again. Never again will we allow six million of our people to die and, and so on. But the Bible says two-thirds of the Jewish people are going to be killed. Somebody has said there's 15 million Jews in the world. I don't know if that's true, but if there are, that means 10 million. So more than Hitler killed in World War II. Here's the devastating thing that uh, we need to understand about fire. As long as it has fuel and oxygen, it will continue to spread and destroy. As long as it has fuel and oxygen, it will continue to spread and destroy. And guys, listen, the same is true with the fuel the tongue provides with regard to gossip. As long as there are people who are willing to share gossip, lives will continue to be destroyed. Remember what Solomon said in Proverbs 26, verses 20 and 21? Where there is no wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no tail bearer, strife ceases. As charcoal is to burning coals and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. You know, uh, it just takes one discontented person, okay? One person who has got an ax to grind Who thinks they were mistreated to begin to, you know, speak in such a way as that many lives are damaged and hurt? One author satirically noted, and I quote, I am more deadly than the screaming shell from the howitzer. I win without killing. I tear down homes, break hearts, and wreck lives. I travel on the wings of the wind. No innocence is strong enough to intimidate me. No purity pure enough to daunt me. I have no regard for truth, no respect for justice, no mercy for the defenseless. My victims are as numerous as the sands of the sea and often as innocent. I never forget and seldom forgive. My name is gossip. Something to think about. Well, once again, verse 6, let me read it to you out of the NLT. And the tongue is a flame of fire. It is a whole world of wickedness corrupting your entire body. It can set your whole life on fire, and it is set on fire by hell itself. Don't ever underestimate the power of the spoken word to do good or to do evil. You know, it's it's amazing. Now listen, not only is the tongue like a fire, but James says it's also like a dangerous animal. Verse uh, 7, For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and, and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no one can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. I'm fascinated by what uh, animal trainers can train animals to do. I watched a program uh, a couple years ago uh, that dealt with um, uh, animal trainers that were used by Hollywood to train animals, dogs, and whatever, for movies. And, uh, you know, the things they were able to make... These animals do is absolutely amazing to me, all right? I mean, just to watch it. Of course, we've all seen things on TV. I I like to watch documentaries and travel programs. And, uh, you know, uh, I've seen um, snake charmers in India and how they're able to charm these uh, deadly cobras and things. Years ago, my family went to SeaWorld in San Diego, and they put on a performance, of course, and we watched, uh, you know, whales and dolphins Uh, do amazing things at the command of trainers and so on. In the circus, we know that animals like lions and elephants are trained to do incredible things. I just read not long ago about one lion tamer in the circus who said that he always raised uh, the lions he uh, used in his performances from cubs. He said he would never get into a cage with a lion that was full-grown that he had not raised from a cub because they're just too dangerous and unpredictable. When you raise, it doesn't guarantee the animal's not going to turn on you, but when you raise uh, a, um, a lion from a cub, and you're there every day, and all, they, they know you, they, they understand who you are, they're, you know, they're your friends. But um, I thought about that, how that, to train these deadly lions, he started when they were little, when they were cubs. And I thought, you know, that's a good word of advice for parents. The best time to train our kids to begin to control what comes out of their mouths is when they're young, is when they're young, you know? Train up a child. One of the things this uh, lion tamer said was the reason that he's able to, uh, you know, he, he trains these young lions um and 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 they get used to him they get used to obeying his commands from a young age and it's our responsibility as parents to to not just teach our children proverbs 22:6 6 to train up a child in the way they should go and when they're old they won't depart from it that's time to start teaching our kids how to be polite uh one of the things cindy and i always always did we were always on the same page we were always on the same page with pretty much everything with the kids but one of the things we were always totally uh, on the same page with was they were never allowed to sass us, to talk back to us. Ne- never was allowed. And to this day, they have grown up with a respect for us. They honor us. They never uh, have never sworn at us at, at any time because when they're little, you have to teach your children how to respect authority and so on. But as parents, even though we should do what we can to teach our children to control what comes out of their mouths when they're young. Listen, James says in verse 8 that ultimately nobody can completely tame the destructive power of the tongue. That is only one person, and that's the Holy Spirit. We can't do it. I mean, we can try to curb what comes out of our mouths, but everybody in this room knows that uh, sometimes we kind of get away from the Lord a little bit, and what happens? What's the first thing that happens? Stuff starts coming out of our mouths that we thought we had a We had victory over. You know, it's a constant battle. But as we keep drawing close to the Lord, walking in the Spirit, then the the Holy Spirit gives us grace to uh, honor the Lord in what we say and what we do. But the tongue can only really be tamed by the Holy Spirit. And listen, tamed it must be, because James says in verse 8, the tongue is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. One author said, and I quote, the poison of the tongue is no less deadly than a serpent's venom. It murders men's reputation by the slander it utters, their souls by the lust and passions it stirs up in them, and many times their bodies too by the contentions and quarrels it raises against men. End quote. The word unruly there in verse 8, the tongue is an unruly evil, is the same Greek word translated unstable in chapter 1, verse 8. And the Greek word carries the idea of a wild animal fighting fiercely to break out of captivity. Okay, a wild animal fighting fiercely to break out of captivity. Is that the tongue or what? Remember, we said when we first started this study. The tongue is the only member of our body that God has has given us with His own cage. Our mouth, our teeth, act like a cage. Okay, and the tongue is always wanting to break out of that captivity. It's always wanting to say what just the things that come into our heads, we have to stop and say, well, wait a minute, before I say this, you learn this in marriage after a few years, okay? <laughs> before I say this, what is going to be the result? All right? I mean, is it worth saying what I'm thinking and knowing where it's going to lead? All right? And I think the older you get, the wiser you get. Now, there's a lot of things now I, I, I wouldn't say to people, you know, I mean, just something shoots in. I'm not going to tell you what shoots into my head. Uh, you say, well, what do you think? Nothing bad, but sometimes you just want to give, it, you know, just a little cutting remark or something, you know. But, you know, you learn over the course of time, you know what, that's not going to edify. It's a snarky comment. That's going to make me feel good maybe in the flesh. It's not going to do anything to edify them or honor the Lord, right? Um, but it's interesting how he phrases this. The tongue is an unruly evil. It's like an animal that wants to break out of its cage every chance it gets, right? Uh, as one pastor noted, its venom is more deadly than a, than a snake's because it can destroy morally, socially, economically, and spiritually. And that's so true. So true. All it takes is for one person to inject some poisonous gossip into a conversation for an entire family or a church to be destroyed. If we only knew How many lives, how many families, how many churches have been destroyed by gossip? We would be shocked. We'd be shocked. And it does tell us that, you know what? The devil is always wanting to get us on his team. He is always wanting to enlist us in his cause. Of course, he's too smart to present it that way. I mean, everybody who has an axe to grind about somebody else in the body of Christ, it's always because they're standing up for truth. They're exposing a phony. They're, you know, they're honoring God. No, they're just indulging the flesh. The Bible says that no weapon formed against you is going to prosper. We think of the devil, but do you know what? If you set yourself as a weapon against another Christian, by the things you say, you're not going to prosper. You won't, you won't prosper spiritually. You, you probably won't prosper in any other area of your life. This is a serious thing. Look, either we're working for Jesus by using our mouths to build up and edify, or whether we know it or not, or we like to think of it or not, we're working for the devil if we seek to tear it down, those that God loves. Something to think about for this new year. Verse 8, once again, no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Verse 9, with it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God, made in God's image. Out of the same mouth proceed uh, proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Of course, the point James is making, listen, is that a redeemed heart should produce a redeemed tongue. Unfortunately, often the last part of a Christian's body to be redeemed is their tongue. And so you have Christians who love the Lord. They're not saying you don't love the Lord. They love the Lord, come to church, sing his praises, and then on the way home they uh, curse other Christians who they're having a problem with at church, maybe use profanity or tell dirty jokes at work. James' point is that you can come to church and be a Christian, but maturity has learned to control the tongue. We can all put the facade on. We can all come to church and I'm not saying we don't love God. I'm not saying we're we're just playing a hypocrite. We come because we love the Lord. We love to hear his word. We love to, to uh, sing his praises. But then when we leave here, we rip apart, you know, curse people who are made in his image, right? What did God say, the Holy Spirit say through John, if you can't love your brother whom you have seen, how can you love God whom you have not seen? Notice one thing here. James isn't saying... A person who uses profanity or curses another can't really be a Christian. He simply says in verse 10, these things ought not to be so. Again, his point isn't to prove the validity of his reader's salvation, but the maturity of their salvation. A true Christian can and often does use their tongues to tear down, to curse, to rip apart. But James says it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. Because... If we are truly believers in Christ, the Holy Spirit lives within us, the Holy Spirit. And he has filled us with the character of God. That's what the fruit of the Spirit is. It's the attributes of God's character. And as, as Peter said, he said we have become partakers of the divine nature. And of course, if God, who is holy, fills us, then what comes out of our mouth should be holy and honoring to the Lord. And he basically is saying, look, as a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit within you. And the Holy Spirit is like the pure, fresh, life-giving water of a spring. Okay, And in that culture, of course, uh, living in a Middle East arid climate, water was very important. And um, if you didn't have access to a freshwater source like a river, a spring, or a fountain, or something like that, you'd have to dig yourself wells, cisterns, and uh, trap rainwater, which was always less uh, desirable because you know stagnant and it gets things in there grown and stuff, you know. So, uh, so if, if they had access to a spring, a mountain spring, we'll say, that pure, sweet, life-giving water, James is using that. He's picking up on that. He says in verse eleven, "Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a, a, a spring uh, give forth?" Fresh, pure water, and then poisonous water at the same time? No, of course not. Verse 12, can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. What is he saying? He's saying everything in nature brings forth after its what? Its kind. That's what God said back in Genesis when he created everything. He said, let everything bring forth after its kind kind that means an apple tree will never produce tomatoes a tomato plant will never produce watermelons everything is going to bring forth after its kind now james picks up on that even as jesus did in the gospels when jesus told us look you'll know them by their fruit because a thorn bush can't produce figs uh you know and uh and uh, a fig tree it won't produce thorns everything is going to bring forth after its kind you're going to know them by their fruit. Now listen to me. Even though it's possible for a true Christian to curse and spread gossip, it could indicate, listen, that a person isn't really a child of God if a constant flow of sewage keeps coming out of their mouth. Any one of us as Christians can slip. Any one of us can backslide a little bit and start getting back into some of the old language. But believe me, you've experienced it. If you you let something slip out of your mouth, or you participate in some office baloney where you know, you're kind of sharing an off-color or a dirty joke. What happens immediately when it leaves your mouth? The Holy Spirit is convicting you. It doesn't feel good, does it? Because you know that the Holy Spirit is inside of you. And he doesn't want us to talk like that. But if a person can curse and swear and, and, and all these things constantly, well, it could very well indicate that they aren't truly a Christian child of God. Remember what James says back in chapter 1, verse 26? If anyone among you thinks he is religious, if you think you have a relationship with God, you know, when he uses the word religious in the sense of a, a true relationship with the Lord. If anyone among you thinks he's really saved, I'll paraphrase, and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his own heart, and his religion or his so-called relationship with God is useless. Again, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So, you know, we have to look at, well, all right, what's been coming out of my mouth, right? At very least, what comes out of a person's mouth demonstrates what's in the heart. And uh, it's always a good, and we talked about this last time at length, how that, you know, we can always tell where we are spiritually. I'm saying if you're genuinely saved, but you can always tell where you are spiritually if you're, you know, walking closely with the Lord or you're backslidden by the things that comes out of your mouth. That's just the truest indication. Warren Wordsby said, and I quote, the tongue that blesses the Father and then turns around and curses men made in God's image is in desperate need of spiritual medicine. How easy it is to sing the hymns during the worship service then after the service get into the family car and argue and fight all the way home. My brethren, these things ought not to be. The problem, of course, is not the tongue, it's the heart. He quotes Matthew 15, but those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they are what defile a man, Jesus said, Matthew 15, verse 18. Keep your heart with all diligence, Solomon told us in Proverbs 4:23, for out of it flow the issues of life. He said, as we fill our hearts with God's word and yield to the Holy Spirit, he can use us to bring delight to others, and we will be refreshing fountains in other words we'll be refreshing fountains in the sense the spirit will be speaking through us because the spirit is 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 living water john 4 right Uh, john 7 um, you know jesus likened the spirit to to living water and that what is living water well again it's it's moving water it's a spring or a river which was always more preferable than a stagnant body of water it was life-giving they they Obviously, water is life. Nobody knows that more than those people who live in an arid climate, and like uh, in Israel. But if we will walk in the Spirit, fill our minds with God's Word, then the Holy Spirit will speak through us, words that are life-giving. Uh, our lives will be like a fruit-bearing tree, in a sense, whereby people can, can eat the things that we're talking about because they're from God's Word and, uh, and have health and strength. Let me give you three Proverbs, because the Proverbs have a, Solomon had a lot to say in Proverbs about this issue. Uh, he said in Proverbs 18, verse 4, The words of a man's mouth are deep waters. The wellspring of wisdom is a flowing brook. Proverbs ten eleven, The mouth of the righteous is a well of life, but violence covers the mouth of the wicked. In Proverbs 13, verse 14, The law of the wise is a fountain of life. Uh, to turn one away from the snares of death. And there's a lot more you can read on your own. At the book of Proverbs has a lot to say about this subject. Now, listen, as I was reading Warren Worsby's commentary and others uh, today and preparation for our study tonight, uh, he concluded this section in uh, James's epistle by suggesting that Christians start using what he calls 12 words that can transform your life. Twelve words that can transform you. I thought it was, it was a good uh, thing that he brings out here. I like to read it to you. All right. He said, and I quote: "If you use these words and sincerely mean what you say from your heart, you will find that God will use you to be a blessing and encouragement to others." There's only twelve of these words, he says, but they really work. First of all, please and thank you. He said, when you use these three words, you are treating others like people and not things. You are showing appreciation. I'm sorry. These two words have a way of breaking down walls and building bridges. I love you. Too many people read romance into these words, but they go much deeper than that. As Christians, we should love the brethren and even love our enemies. I love you is a statement that can carry tremendous power. And finally, I am praying for you, and be sure that you are, he said. When you talk to God about people, then you can talk to people about God. Our private praying for people helps us in our public meeting with people. Of course, we never say, I'm praying for you in a boastful way, as though we are more spiritual than others. We say it in an encouraging way, to let others know that we care enough for them to meet them at the throne of grace, end quote. Now guys, we've talked a lot tonight about us being the ones speaking the words that damage other people. But we live in a world, and the church is by no means immune. We live in a world where so many people direct these poisonous words at us. And we have to be careful because Often we don't really put the walls up. We don't resist them. We just absorb them, and that's always a problem. Years ago, I came across, and I'm not sure if it was my wife that came across or I did or we both did, but we came across an article, an amazing article. I think it was at one time a sermon. It was, uh, you know, written down, okay, transcribed, and um, it became this article that uh, I, that we read. And uh, it's really an amazing article that every Christian should read. It's called, How to Guard Against the Defilement of Listening to an Evil Report. An evil report would be gossip, slander, things that people direct at us, maybe not at us, but they direct at us about somebody else. And they defile us if we take them in, right? And so uh, it's an article that I think every Christian should read and consider. And so what I've done is... I've attached it to the end of my notes. So if you were to go online tomorrow, the notes will be up there, and you were to look for the notes for uh, the seventh study in the book of James, chapter 3, verses 3 to 12. As you scroll down, my notes uh, on the teaching tonight cover 11 uh, pages. uh, Starting on page 12 to about page 20, I've copied and pasted this, uh, you know, um, how to guard against the defilement of listening to an evil report. I encourage you to read it over. Uh, I encourage you to meditate on it because I'm telling you, very insightful. And it's got a lot of scriptures that back up the points, but uh, it will help you to understand the severity. Yeah, not just talking slander and gossip, uh, but being the recipient of it, which we don't often make a fuss about. We just kind of listen and absorb and it defiles us and the devil uses it. Uh, You know, those seeds are planted in our brain and you know there have been a lot of things and i'm not complaining this just goes with the territory there have been a lot of people over the course of 37 years of ministry who have said things about me that were flat out untrue just flat out untrue maybe they purposely were trying to lie about me maybe they had picked up some gossip from somebody else and thought it was accurate and shared it with others but it's gotten back to me a lot of it and um even and i don't run around guys i i learned a long time ago from my pastor look if you run around defending yourself god will let you you know what keep doing what the lord's called you to do and you know if you if you're faithful serving god he'll be your defender and if god is your defender believe me he'll do a much better job than you will do by running around trying to correct all the falsehoods right just keep serving the lord but it's been my experience even when some people who uh, who were um, led to believe something about me will say, and I'm by no means unique. Pastors go through this all the time. But a lot of people who had these things planted in their head about me, and then later on they found out it was a lie, don't you know there's still something in the back of their head that says, well, but what if some of it's true? And see, this is how the devil works. He tries to sow things into our minds against one another, because he wants to cause division, discord. My prayer for this year, and we just started praying this right away, Monday night, men's prayer. God, make this a year that we are so totally unified. We have harmony in the body where we give each other the benefit of the doubt that we don't receive this this gossip and things from people, Lord, against one another. That we really want this to be a year where we use our mouths to build up and edify, not tear down and so on. So will you join me in praying that? And, and always remember that the devil can't conquer unless he first divides. And he divides by getting us against each other. May God give us the grace, not the fault for that, because it's one of his most effective strategies. So let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for who you are. We thank you, Lord, that in Christ... We are new creations. The flesh no longer can dominate us. Oh, we can let it, but it doesn't have to be. We can curse, we can swear, we can gossip, but these things ought not to be among those who have the Holy Spirit within them. So give us grace, Lord, to understand that we can either yield ourselves as instruments of destruction through what we say and do, or we can come to you every day Lay ourselves on the altar of sacrifice and say, Lord, today will you take me? Will you use me for your glory? Will you fill me with your spirit? May the things I think, the words I say, and the actions I do, may they be consistent with who you are, that you would always be honored by the life I live, that people would see the light, be drawn to you, and be saved. Lord, we pray that would be uh, our goal and our ongoing prayer this new year. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.